I love uh, I love Wednesday nights because you know my pattern. What I've done for years is I do topical messages on Sunday and expository on Wednesday night. Meaning Sundays are topics, topical series. We're right now on the unsung heroes. And do I have a name for this Sunday? You have never heard. But a person that did a great thing and it's really going to speak to you. Uh, but on Wednesday nights, we get to get into the meat of the word. And I really, really like that. So uh, tonight, we're going to look at Paul's positive outlook. He was a positive thinker, but not Norman Vincent Peelish. He was a positive thinker because he knew who was in charge. And he trusted him. So we're going to look at that tonight. Next week, I don't want you to miss it because this is going to really hit home. We're calling it Don't Worry About It. We're going to look at the age-old problem of worry. Anybody worried yet this year? Some of you are worried that you're not worrying. But we're going to look at worry next week. Uh, but tonight, Paul's positive outlook, we're going into chapter 4 in the final mile of the book of Philippians, the letter of joy. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the word of God. You gave us every single word. You gave us every one of these verses, every one of these thoughts, these ideas. And we pray that tonight you will plant us in the Word of God. That, Lord, the Word will work and our faith will grow. That we will have victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, we breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. I receive your message in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him. Perk up and listen. You're going to need it tomorrow morning. All right. Now, uh, this is a great, great, I love the book of Philippians. And uh, last time we looked at Paul's exhortation to forget what lies behind and press on to what lies ahead. Uh, we learned that sometimes we've got to forgive ourselves as God has forgiven us. How many of you have ever had a hard time forgiving you? Okay, everybody else forgave you, God forgave you, but you wouldn't forgive you. Do you know that you're sinning when you do that? And I've done it. And the Lord spoke to me one time and said, Jeff, is your sin greater than my blood? And I said, of course, no. Then you not forgiving you is like you not forgiving somebody else. And I've commanded you to forgive others, which includes you, as I have forgiven you. So you can't hold a grudge against yourself. You can't beat yourself up. Now that's free. That's carryover from last week. But I want you to be sure you get that. Sometimes you need to look in the mirror and say, self, I forgive you. Just try it. Now, God has forgiven us. And we also explored Paul's meaning in the words, quote, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. We saw that Jesus seized us, that we were actually arrested, apprehended by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had a that in mind. He had something in mind for you and for me. And that included um, our salvation, our sanctification, our personal calling, and everything that had to do with what God had in his mind. But what I want you to understand is he had more in his mind than just getting you to heaven. But he had a that in his mind for you. That means you have an individual calling. There's something God wants you to do that I can't do. 
He wants me to do something you can't do because we're all called individually, custom designed for the purposes of God on this earth. He said God chose us in him before he laid the foundations of the world that we would be involved in good works. All right? So please be aware that God saved you. And when you said, I accept you into my heart, Lord, and you were born again, God already had something in mind that he saw you doing, that he saw you involved in, by which you would glorify him on this earth before you go to heaven. And it's called that. And Paul refused to allow anything to prevent his attaining that. Anything standing in your way, stopping you, blocking you, hindering you from the will of God is your enemy. Because we got one life to live and then it's over, as the soap opera says. One life to live for all his children to get it together (laughs) as the world turns. (laughs) All right. Now, as we enter chapter 4, we see again Paul's unquenchable joy and positive attitude in all things. He begins by mentioning his positive thoughts about the Philippians. He says in verse 1, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. This is like a father writing his daughter. Do, Do you hear the affection, the paternal affection in Paul's voice? Look at those adjectives. My longed for brethren. It's almost like a man writing his sweetheart. My longed for brethren. You're my joy. You're my crown. Stand fast in the Lord. Beloved. Paul didn't just like them. He loved them. And, and my hope is as we go through these passages and what I, what I really want it to do for me is I want us to to listen to what we're hearing. The words he uses, the what is in this man's heart, what Christ has worked into him, how he loves people. If you stop and think about it, you don't find this much. What we're reading here, you don't find it in just boatloads in the church today. There's a lot of criticizing, a lot of slandering, a lot of gossiping. There's a lot of And I'm not saying there's not love. There's a lot of love in this church. People tell me all the time they feel very greeted, very welcomed, very warmly received. I'm not saying it's not there. But this level, he longed to be with them. He was homesick for them. They weren't his natural kin, but he was homesick for them. In his mind's eye, he remembered their facial expressions and their gestures. I really believe that. He visualized them at home and at work. Now remember, where is he? Prison. Who's standing next to him? A Roman guard. What are his future prospects? Unknown. He birthed this church in the red hot heat of persecution. He was driven out of town by the magistrates. And yet here he is remembering back and he's, 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 he's homesick for them. He loves them. He could feel the bear hug of the jailer. Remember that jailer after the jail was rocked and the earthquake came and all the doors flew open. The jailer started to take his own life. And Paul said, don't you dare commit suicide. We're all here. 
and he was converted and his whole family was saved, I believe he remembered the bear hug of that jailer. And the friendly handshake of Lydia, who allowed the apostles into her home, was hospitable towards them. He had birthed them in Christ Jesus as his spiritual children, and he missed them, genuinely, truly missed them, genuinely loved them, would have, did give his life for them, not as Christ did, but in laying it down so that they could grow in him. His love was genuine. It wasn't fake, phony, shallow. There was no pretense. It was real. And this is what gets me about this man. They were his joy and his crown. As he thought of them, I believe the drabness of the prison walls melted away. Picturing himself answering to his name at the roll call of the judgment seat of Christ, he heard the Lord's, well done, Paul, and saw himself receiving a crown. And emblazoned on the gleaming sides of that crown was the word Philippi. Philippi. There were other names on his crown. Philippi is one of them. I'm going to tell you, without being melodramatic or syrupy, sentimental, I, I believe when I get to heaven and God graces me with a crown on the side of it, it's going to say turning point. And whatever you have done and, and people who you have influenced, lives you have touched, People you have served in the name of the Lord. Don't you know there's a reward for that in glory that it says so in, in Corinthians and all throughout the New Testament, book of Revelations, you name it, it's everywhere that there is a soul winner's crown, there is a pastor's crown, there is a prayer's crown. There are several crowns that are going to be given away on that day. And on those crowns, I believe, are going to be names and places of things that you did and people you touch for the glory of God that you are going to receive a reward for. One of his would say Philippi. He loved them. Now, next, he remembers the one sad report brought to him by Epaphroditus from Philippi. Remember, Epaphroditus was sent by the Philippians to take care of Paul. And you recall that while he was there, he got deathly ill. And he almost died. And Paul said, thank God he didn't die. God saved me from sorrow on top of sorrow that he did not die. And he sent him back. He sent Epaphroditus back to Philippi with the letter that we've been studying. And now Epaphroditus had given Paul a report when he was first sent. And he said, there's a problem in the church. There's two women who are not getting along. Paul's concern about two women at odds with each other reminds us. And because he's about to mention them, he's about to name them. Okay, but now just catch this. It's just two women, but they're at odds with each other to a level that when Epaphroditus goes to Paul in the Roman prison, he says, I got to talk to you about these women. Now it could have been two men, but it had to be two women. He said, these two women are really not getting along, Paul. And, and, and it, it is starting to spread like leaven. And I'm concerned about the well-being of the church because this squabble between these women is not resolving. He waited the whole letter before he dove in to one of the real reasons he wrote it in the first place. But I want you to catch something here. Paul's concern about two women at odds with each other. 
reminds us of how keenly Paul understood the fact that Satan is ever prowling about God's church, looking for an entryway. He'll get in any way that he can. Remember, I preached Sunday on the lion. The lion walks about roaring, prowling, stalking, looking for someone he can devour. The the devil is a stalker. He's a prowler. He's always looking for a door that's open but a crack. He's always looking for a window that the shade is barely drawn up. He's always looking for the least little gateway in. It doesn't take much. Paul understood the fact that even though this was just two women in the church having a squabble, it had the potential to let the devil into the church. I want us to catch that so that we will all understand how all of us have a responsibility in our church home to keep the devil out. We have a responsibility to keep him out. And and we have a responsibility to be wise as to how he gets in. Now, if we give any ground to Satan, I promise you, he will press his advantage. If we allow a little indulgence here, a little carelessness, carelessness there, well, this little compromise over here won't really matter much. Nobody's looking and God understands I'm just human and I'm weak and I've got my little faults and failures like everybody else. Jesus died for me. So this, this little area here, I can give in a little bit and we don't realize that all it takes is a, is a door open, a, a crack, and the devil will press his advantage and kick that door in. He gets in through the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. What we're hearing in Paul here is, is an understanding of this. And of course, if anybody understood it, it was the mighty apostle Paul. He understood the devil. He said, we're not ignorant of his devices. He said, we don't beat the air. We know who we're fighting. And we know how he operates. So, if we give any ground to the devil, he will press his advantage. He will kick his way in. And battalions of evil thoughts and ungodly impulses will seize our imagination and entrench themselves in our soul. So Paul says to them, my beloved, my children, who I love, who I miss, who I long for, stand fast in the Lord and don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't give him a microsecond to get into your life. Y'all hearing me tonight? That's what he's saying. Because it, it strikes me that it went into the eternal word of God, a squabble between two women. Went into the eternal word of God. And that their squabble meant enough, carried enough gravity with Paul, that he put it in a letter and named them. He knew how the devil gets in. Now, for the two women. Verse 2. I implore Euodia... And I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Oh, 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 brought out in the open at last is the disagreement between two sisters in Christ in the assembly. Paul needed no further explanation. The situation was all too familiar. And you know what? It's very familiar to me too, as a pastor of almost 30 years now. Very familiar to me. Words passed between two people over something fairly inconsequential. But there's a little offense. Something happens. Something strikes the other person wrong. 
They don't like what was said or what was done. They feel slighted. They feel overlooked. Or, or they feel that something critical has been said about them or some little something, and there's an offense taken. I can't tell you the power that an offense has. It can ruin your whole Christian walk the rest of your life. So something happens very uh, inc- inconsequential seemingly. A difference of opinion about, l- let's just surmise here, the, the color of the carpet. I've heard of churches splitting over the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. That's why Kathy picks the color and nobody says a word. And that's just it. Because we're not going to have a squabble over the color of carpet. But I've seen churches. I've, I've watched churches almost fist fight over things that were just really at face value, inconsequential, stupid, minimal, shallow, meaningless in light of the big picture. So, so there's, a, there's a disagreement between two sisters, two brothers. doesn't really matter. Soon the two are not speaking. And when they see each other in the sanctuary, they give each other the look. Darts are shooting across the sanctuary. Fiery darts are shooting out of the eyes. They see each other. They're both holy, both righteous, both full of the Holy Spirit of God. It's the other one that's wrong. They avoid each other. One sits over. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying th- this is all play here, but some, one sits over here, one sits over here. Now, sympathizers get recruited. And you gather your little circle of people who have taken up your offense. We call that skunking other people. First, you get skunked. You get skunked with an offense, and you start stinking from the offense. You got sprayed. You got skunked. Because everywhere you go, the first thing out of your mouth is what you're offended about. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. So we see you coming, and we know we're going to hear it because it's not settled yet. Did you know that sister so-and-so said this and that about me, and I forgave her, and I tried to make it right, but I couldn't because she is stubborn and stiff-necked, and I don't even know if she's really saved. But we'll pray about that. In the meantime, pray for me because I'm having a real hard time forgiving her. And then you got this little group of people that surround them and go, oh, I can't believe you were treated that way. That's so bad. That's so unchristian. And in this church, we'll pray with you, sister. Now you've got 10 people with one skunked and stinking, smelling, because an offense has a smell. It has a spiritual stench. Now over on this side is the one who everybody over here is wondering is even saved. And she got her little group. And she's saying, you know what she did? She said this and that about me. And I tried to make it right. And I smiled at her in the hallway. And she looked the other way and went right past me. She's carrying a root of bitterness. I don't think she's ever been filled with the Holy Spirit. She said she spoke in another prayer language, but I don't think she's got one. I don't even know if she's saved. Now you've got 10 people over here who wonder if she's saved. And now you've got two groups at odds. What has not happened is this one over here and this one over here have not gotten together and sat down in a room alone and talked it out. No, they've now got 10 skunk people over here and 10 skunk people over here. Now, let me tell you where the devil's at this whole time, right in the middle of it and loves every second of it because he is in the process of defusing that church from its power and its testimony. That's the way it works. 
He is sucking the life out of that church by these offenses that are unresolved. And now you've got gossip and slander and, and, and backbiting and whispering going on between these two groups. And their tribe is growing. They are gaining strength. And the, the preacher's up here. He may know about it. He may not. But he can't figure out why on a Sunday morning there's no power and God's not moving and nobody's getting saved and why a few people are starting to leave the church. It's because the Spirit of God is grieved. Paul knew two women with unresolved conflict could ruin the Philippian church. So you got sympathizers recruited, skunked people on both sides. The fire spreads from there. Soon a large slice of the congregation is at odds. Its testimony suffers as the unsaved witness the trivial argument the unsaved people the people were all saying bring them to church and they'll get saved and meet the Lord and see how good God is they come in here and they see the two tribes and they see the fighting and the squabbling you know what they say well that's just like where I work that's just like my office that's just like all these lost people that as soon as the bell rings and they're out of work they're at happy hour it's the same thing what's different God help us. We got to grow up, everybody. Now, this is preemptive. There's nothing that I know about like this going on here. I'm just teaching this letter, and I want you to see the potential that Paul saw. Because when we have people come in here lost, we want them to sense the presence of God. We want them to see people loving each other. We want them to enjoy Christian fellowship. We want them to see people handling offenses and disagreements on a mature level, saturated in love, not like they see at the office or at home. If we're no different, why hang a shingle outside and call ourselves a church? Well, what begins to happen is our testimony begins to suffer as the unsaved witness, the trivial argument. These are the people of love, they ask. The work of the church begins to limp because nobody can agree on anything because now both groups are really big. The more mature members of the church make a few attempts to bring order, sanity, charity, all to no avail. Hard feelings have developed and the hearts have hardened. And to stop such nonsense at Philippi, Paul named names. Woo! Let me tell you, one thing I don't want is my name in the Word of God in a negative way. Oh, oh no, no, no. But there it is, two women. They're about to be named. They're sitting there. Oh, they're about to be named. Now, you say, well, that's not very Christian that he would name them. Sometimes you've got to name names. Sometimes you've got to show the source of the trouble. Now, let's look. Sometimes the only way to deal with some of these problems is to name names and to force the two people causing the trouble to face their personal responsibility for what is happening. Because they should have fixed this long before this letter came. The local church has authority to deal with three issues. And here they are, church. Sin, false doctrine, and factions. Factions being those who sow discord. As a pastor, I have authority in this church to deal with three things. 
sin. If somebody is in sin and keeps on sinning and won't stop and you go and you, you try to talk to them and they're living a life of sin and, and it's beginning to affect others and, 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 and uh, it's just really something that uh, is beginning to affect the well-being and the, the, uh, the atmosphere of the church and it's grieving the spirit. I have and the elders have the responsibility to deal with that sin and we have the authority in God to do it. And we have done that. We have dealt with that. Now, false doctrine, I'm on that faster than you can say, Jesus, help me. If there's false doctrine moving through this church, I have authority to step in and say, that is bad teaching. And I'm going to show you in the Bible why it's bad teaching. And I can't let that go on in this church, lest a little bit of leaven leaven the whole lump. So I'll deal with false teaching. But then there's the factious who are who are sowing discord. They're not handling offenses right. They're taking their offenses to other people and, and, and other people are, are getting skunked and, and the atmosphere and the power and the testimony of the church is being affected. I have authority to go straight to that person and say, stop it or I'm going to have to ask you to go somewhere else. Rarely do you have to do that. I've only had, in 30 years of pastoring, I've had to do that maybe three times. Go right up to somebody and say, you're not welcome anymore. One, one time I had to do with a guy who was just really immoral, and he was continuously trying to seduce women in the church. And I had to ask him to get out. The factious. I will not let somebody sow discord in this church. If they keep doing it, they're going to meet me and the elders. Because we are called to unity. We are called to peace. We are called to power, and power is in unity, not discord. Now, so Paul is no longer sending hints, appeals, or suggestions. He very bluntly confronts the parties involved, and after 82 verses, he finally nails the problem down and names names. Now, can you imagine the scene when this letter was read? Everybody was there. The place was packed. Because Epaphroditus had come back with precious cargo. He had a letter from Paul. Now, he's been welcomed back home, Epaphroditus. He's called the meeting to read the letter. Now, you know that he already read it. You know he did on his journey back. You know he peaked. You know he peaked. He knew what was in there. Okay? He's already read it. He knows what's coming. He knows that in chapter 4, verse 2, there was no chapters. But he knew at the end of the letter, these gals were named. Here and there were hints that Paul knew about the squabble. He's leading up to it. Euodius and Syntyche cast quick, uneasy glances toward each other. Then they look away. They dart angry looks at Epaphroditus. Did you rat us out? This was sensitive. Paphroditus, I hope you didn't go tell Paul about our squabble. You didn't go tell the great apostle about our trouble, did you? He did. He went and told. Then, like a bolt out of the blue, the two ladies heard their names being read. I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Kaboom! Like a flash of lightning out of a calm blue sky, the squabbling pair were named. Bluntly, inescapably, irrefutably named. Every eye was on them. <laughs> Can you just imagine if I said, 
I beseech Jane and Pat, quit your squabbling. I did it here. And all of you would look, you'd be right on them. Everybody's looking at them. They felt like curling up and digging a hole into China. Don't you know? This came from the greatest man of God on earth at that time. The atmosphere in the meeting room was electric with tension. Perhaps one of these ladies flushed deep red and burst into tears. The other may have bitter lip and turned as white as a sheet, but I'll guarantee you they didn't smile and say hallelujah. But it wasn't intended to destroy them. The pleading voice of Paul echoed the voice of the Lord Jesus. Mercifully, the reference to the two women was brief. One verse, there it came, zing, though he quickly changed the subject, how accurate was his aim. And his words apply to us as well as to the Philippians. We don't have to agree on politics or diet or sports or music or books, but we do have to be of the same mind in the Lord. Amen. This doesn't mean we're to tolerate doctrinal error for the sake of unity. I'll never do that. Or put up with immorality or some other sin in the church for the sake of keeping the peace. Never. It's not going to happen. And I will never kowtow to the culture to keep peace with the culture. It's not going to happen. If the culture wants me to do something that I can't do morally, ethically, legally, I will not do it. Never do it. I won't do it. I'll just say no. Do with me what you want, but I'll never do it. I'll never throw the Bible out. I'll never marry two people of the same sex. Not going to do it. You say, because that's coming, my friend. There is, there is something going on right now in Kansas. There is a city council right now deciding on whether or not to force the churches in their jurisdiction to marry same-sex couples. It, it'll, it'll come in like we've been reading. It'll, it'll try to get its way in through some little crack in the door. Some little out-of-the-way place, the trend will start. And if they can get away with it in some little out-of-the-way county where the churches there are, are told, you must marry people of the same sex, which for me would be a terrible sin against the Word of God, then um, it'll spread from there. One day there may very well come a knock on the door. Will you marry us? You have to. Because now the city council in this area has met. And I will say, no, I can't. Do with me what you want, but I can't. I won't. Now, I won't do that to keep the peace. But if you want to... If you want to eat something that I wouldn't eat, or if you want to like some other football team than the Cowboys, or you want to go with another baseball team other than the Rangers, I can love you in the Lord, though I will pray for you very much, but I will love you, and we can get along, right? We can still have peace there but not for something immoral or wrong. Now, it does, it does mean we cannot squabble and we cannot sow discord over our differences. We can't do it. Now, next we see Paul's positive thought about his partners. Quote, he says, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women, help these women. Now, this is Euodius and Syntyche. He's talking to Epaphroditus. 
true companion, I urge you, true companion, help these two women who labored with me in the gospel. Now, what's he doing? He, he kind of nailed them with what he said. They need to get along. Now he's picking them back up. They labored with me in the gospel. With Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life, he's saying, this mention, reading this letter to them in the meeting isn't going to take care of their problem. It's going to be a process. And I'm asking you now to take the baton and run with it. Epaphroditus and other leadership in the church, help these two women now work their stuff out to a good conclusion. Because they are valuable. They labored with me in the gospel. So the, he picks them back up. Isn't that beautiful? Paul was realistic enough to realize his few brief words would not fully settle the issue between the two women. Their feelings of shock and embarrassment and having their names read to the whole congregation would need some help in getting over it. So he asked his fellow worker, Epaphroditus, and the elders, help them get over it and soften the blow of what just happened and having their names read. He remembers the good things they have done, and I think that's beautiful, and that's the way we need to be with people. Uh, you need to be firm and truthful, but all at the same time loving and affirming. Amen? Amen? Having dealt with this difficult issue, Paul now moves the readers to higher ground, taking their minds off of this difficult event. And he says, rejoice. Read this with me. Here is the theme song of the letter. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, if you didn't hear me the first time, I'm going to say it again the second time. I want you to rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. That's a lot of often. Paul's answer to all of life's problems is the Lord Jesus. When rejoicing in him, here's what he's saying, discord will die. In the midst of some of life's most crushing experiences, Paul's answer is always the same. Think about the Lord. Don't focus on your stuff, on your problems, your troubles. Focus on the Lord. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There's wisdom in that song. The Lord can restore the years the locusts have eaten. Joel 2.25. He can bind up the brokenhearted. You brokenhearted tonight? The Lord can bind it up. Rejoice in him. He can make evil become a means of grace. Do you believe that? Joseph said, as for you, he said to his brothers, as for you, you thought evil against me, but my God meant it for good. You tried to destroy me and wipe me out, but God was bigger than you, stronger than you, and he worked it together for my good. We can realistically and courageously rejoice in the Lord in the midst of our storms. You've got a choice. You do. You can play a violin. You can seclude yourself in some dark room, pull the shades down and die before you're dead. Or you can rejoice in the Lord and say, he's got it. He's got it. I know he's got it. I may not see it today, but I know he's got it. I may not see his hand moving, but I know it's moving because my Bible tells me so. I may be weeping right now, but I'm going to have joy in the morning. I'm going to stand with the Apostle Paul, who was not a lunatic, was not deluded, was not psychotic, was a brilliant spiritual man who to this day has had more influence than anybody on earth save Jesus Christ. And he said, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Not only were they to rejoice, but they wanted, or Paul wanted them to be holy. He said in verse 5, let your moderation be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The word moderation can be translated yieldedness. Let your yieldedness be known to all men. It speaks of selflessness, of a spirit ready to yield in anything that is of self for the Lord's sake. I can judge a person's, uh, I can judge a person's spiritual level by how yielded they are to the Word of God. I've learned this. A lot of people walk around professing Christ. I mean, ask anybody on the street, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Sure, I'm a Christian. I was baptized when I was a kid. I was raised a Baptist. You know, everybody in Texas is a Baptist, or at least used to be. And, and, and I love the Baptists. I don't mean that derogatorily. I do. But you can tell where a man or a woman stands by how they yield to the Word. How they yield when they want to do something and God says no. You can see what they've learned by whether or not they will bow to that Word and the God of that Word and say, not my will but yours be done. That's the key to maturity. I'm telling you, that's it. Do you respect that word more than your own desires? Do you respect that word more than your own thoughts? Let your yieldedness be seen by all men, he says. Between you and him, he always wins. We must remember here that the context of chapter 4, verse 5, is the conflict between these two women, Euodius and Syntyche. Paul was urging them to be selfless, and he added, the Lord is at hand. Now, who, who wants to be caught away in the rapture, in the middle of a fight, with a fellow believer? Well, I think that you, and I think they boom! And there you are, looking at the one that died for you. I know what we'd all do, hallelujah! But the Lord caught you up right in the middle of the argument. He, he's saying to these women, hey, please remember the bigger picture. The Lord is at hand. While rejoicing in the Lord is the recipe for a happy life, expecting the second coming of Christ is the recipe for a holy life. Remember that. If you believe that in the morning you could wake up in heaven, you'll be holy on the way home tonight. Paul always made the Lord is at hand his watchword. He was always saying the Lord is at hand. He's at hand. The guard he set at every door. The Lord's at hand. Do you believe that tonight? Prophecy is coming to pass so fast, folks. It's like you're, when you read the Bible, you're reading the morning paper. It's amazing. The Lord is at hand. Prophetic events are shaping up. Nations are shaping up. Leaders are shaping up. The Lord is at hand. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. The Lord is at hand. Are we, are we going to be caught up fighting, squabbling, divided, split, grieving the spirit, immature? Or are we going to be caught up with some names on our crown? Can you stand with me tonight? 
Don't remember, don't forget next time, don't worry about it. Some of you are going to be delivered from a spirit of worry next week. Take a minute as Jonathan leads us in just a little bit of worship here at the close. Just say, Lord, if there's anything in my heart towards someone, help me to release them. I don't want the enemy to have, probably, Lord, knowing you, they became best of friends. So, Lord, right now, we ask you to help us to forgive. Now, if you can say tonight, you know, Pastor Jeff, there is someone. I want you to take a minute as Jonathan leads us in just a little bit of worship here at the close. Just say, Lord, if there's anything in my heart towards someone, help me to release them. I don't want the enemy to have that crack in the door where he seizes and they became best of friends. So, Lord, right now, we ask you to help us to forgive. Now, if you can say tonight, you know, Pastor Jeff, there is someone. I want you to take a minute as Jonathan leads us in just a little bit of worship here at the close. Just say, Lord, if there's anything in my heart towards someone, help me to release them. I don't want the enemy to have that crack in the door where he seizes an advantage. So, Lord, right now, we ask you to help us to forgive. Now, if you can say tonight, you know, Pastor Jeff, there is someone. I want you to take a minute as Jonathan leads us in just a little bit of worship here at the close. Just say, Lord, if there's anything in my heart towards someone, help me to release them. I don't want the enemy to have that crack in the door where he seizes an advantage. But help me to forgive them. In Jesus' name, let's sing and you pray before we...